Return now to Colossians chapter 1. And our text comes from verse 27. Colossians 1, verse 27, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul, as you're familiar, is often summarizing the content of his gospel ministry. Each summary, when he makes one, shows a different aspect of it. So consider, for example, in Acts 20, where he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he tells them that when he went among them, he wanted to preach to them all the counsel of God. That shows the foundation of his ministry. It's God's word. It shows the breadth of it, too. The whole of it. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, he gives another summary. When he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That shows the practical end of the Christian faith. It's for your life and for every good work. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, we have another where Christ said, I desire to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that shows the central objective facts of the gospel. Right there in the middle of the proclamation of the word of God is Jesus crucified for sinners. Here we have another summary in the three words of our text. Christ in you. Here we have a subjective appropriation of those facts. That is to say, these things that are outside of us are by grace made ours. The foundation is Christ and Him crucified. But this is as the building of a house upon that foundation so that we can live on it. And without that, the foundation is useless because the practical end of Christ's death is not met. What we have here is Christ, not just in himself and his work outside of us, but Christ in you, a Christ received by faith and applied unto every saving grace. So again, we'll briefly consider the text. We'll consider its teaching and then application. In our text, we have this three-word summary of the gospel, Christ in you. We see the foundation of the gospel. It's Christ. This points us to his person. Who is Christ? He is, first, God. Jesus Christ is God. He was in the beginning with God and being at the beginning before all things. He is eternal, eternal God. Prior to our text in Colossians 1, we read of this. In verse 15, we learn that he's the image of the invisible God. He has received the same divine nature as the Father by eternal generation, so that he's his very image. And it says he's the firstborn of every creature. 
Now, don't let the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses trick you on this. They say, look, he's a creature because he's born with them. No. Firstborn here means he's above them. It shows that he's preeminent, not just as a great creature, but as their very creator, which the next verse says, for by him were all things created. You cannot be the creator if you are not God. Christ is the creator. Christ is God. But then this God, indeed this son of God, was in time made flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that happened so that he might do the work to which he was appointed from eternity. And the center point of that work is the cross. Again, Colossians 2 speaks of this, verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, making peace between God and man by suffering there on the cross what all his people deserve to suffer. These are the objective facts of the faith, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the creeds of the church, the apostles, the Nicene Creed. Think of your Heidelberg Catechism. These things are central to the faith. They're foundational. But we have here not only Christ, but Christ in you. And so, as I said before, we have the foundation, but then the appropriation the making of that foundation, our own, the building of our house upon it, in you. Now take care with this, because the word you could be taken corporately, speaking of a whole body, as I can address you, this whole church, as a group. Paul does use you some ways like that. In the same verse, in fact, look, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. The word among there is the same as the word in in our text. He could say in you Gentiles, but there it's just among in the whole group. We know the you is plural. If you read the King James, it's not in thee, it's in you, plural. And it could mean this. Indeed, that's a true doctrine of the faith. That God is in his people corporately. Christ is in his people corporately. He is the one who, Psalm 22 tells us, preaches to the great congregation. And he praises God's name in their midst. That's a beautiful thing to think of as you're singing the Psalms. Jesus Christ, there by his spirit, singing in you and with you, as it were, in the pews with us by his Holy Spirit. And that is true, but it's not what's intended here by this in you. What's intended here is in you individually. Yes, it's in more than one person, but in each of them as in inside them. We can tell that because he says this Christ in you is the hope of glory. And there's no hope of glory by merely being a church member, by merely being part of the gathered body. As great and important as that is, it's not the same as being in Christ and having the hope of glory. If you look at verse 28, it says, Whom we preach warning every man. You see the individual application of this gospel message. What he's speaking here of is union with Jesus Christ 
by faith in individuals. John 14, 20, Christ speaks of I in you and you in me. That's what's being spoken of here. Or in a familiar image in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. This mutual indwelling of Jesus Christ and the believer that comes by faith. That's what's here. So that, as verse 28 says, every man might then be perfect in Christ Jesus. So we have the foundation, the appropriation. Let's put it together in a doctrine from this text. It's that the gospel demands for salvation the subjective, personal, and individual appropriation of Christ by faith. Let's consider this in a few points. To help us understand this, we need to remember sin. Sin, the breaking of the law of God. Sin, which as it offends God's holy character, deserves his wrath. And sin that has made each one of us utterly unable to save ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, puts it very plainly. That even believers who have now been changed and made alive, they were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. You might have been breathing and laughing and running, but spiritually you were as dead as a corpse. Unable to do anything spiritually good, at least in a spiritual way. Unable to please God. Unable to save ourselves. A powerful testimony to this comes in Jeremiah chapter 13. Where he says in verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. That means never. Never. Not by your own strength, not by your own power, not by any power short of God's divine power. We're utterly unable to save ourselves because of sin. Second then, Christ's person and work are necessary to purchase salvation. You see, from the beginning, God decreed that man must die for man's sin. He said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And every man outside of Christ will indeed die for his sins. If we were to have any hope, it had to be a man who would die for us. But no sinful man could die for us. No sinful man could die for us because he would have to atone first for his own sins and he can't do it. But even a man, if it were possible, and it's never been true except for Christ, even a man who was not sinful, who had no sin, who had never sinned, 
even a sinless mere man could not save us. His death would not be valuable enough. Why is that? It's because by sin, having sinned against an infinitely good God, we have earned an infinite guilt. A guilt that cannot be atoned for except by an infinitely precious price. A price no mere man could pay. What was the only solution then? We're given an amazing insight into God's own mind. He leads us through this very process of elimination. When he looks at the sin of man in Isaiah 63, verse 5, and says, And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. What's the solution? Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. What's the solution? It has to be God. Who else is infinitely precious? Only God is infinitely good. But it has also to be man. And thus you see the the beautiful, the amazing divine solution to man's sin. The God-man, Jesus Christ. That God became man. We see then, third... Knowing that sin makes us utterly unable to save ourselves, and therefore that Christ, the God-man, is the only hope for sinners. Third, though that purchase has been made, it is useless to a soul that has no faith. The way that purchase is applied to any sinner who will have it is by faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what does Christ go on to say in John 3, 18? He says, he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Faith and faith alone is what puts us in union with this God, man. It alone makes that purchase he made on the cross effectual for our salvation. And the chief act of this saving faith is that it receives Jesus Christ. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be the children of God. And then as we've already seen in John 15, Christ explains it as abiding in him, resting, staying in the Lord. By sin, we cannot save ourselves. The only hope is the God-man, but the only way to have him is to believe. All of this in those three words, Christ in you. This brings us into application And as we did this morning, it's very right that first of all, we would examine ourselves. I ask you this question. I ask thee, each of you individually, 
not just as a whole group, is Christ in you. I can see as a minister that Christ is here in the body. He's preached, he's prayed, he is sung of. But what about you individually? Your own heart. We need to test our faith. Now, it's one thing to ask, do you believe? But sometimes the answer can be hard to find. We need to ask more specific questions to help us understand. We need to know what saving faith is so that we might further ask whether you have it. So I want to break it down. We can test faith first from its object, the thing which is believed. And what is that? Well, we've seen it. It's Christ. Christ and his work. He is the sole object of saving faith. Do you believe in Christ? Contrast that with other things you could believe in. Yourself. Your family. Christian family, which is a great blessing. Baptism, again, another great blessing. And even in its own way, Peter says, baptism now saveth you. It saves, not by its own strength, certainly not by the power of water, but in the same way any ordinance saves by faith in Jesus Christ as a means that God appointed to bring us his benefits, not without faith, only in faith. Church membership, important as it is, you cannot trust in it. These good things cannot be the object of your faith. Here again words no doubt familiar to you. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's it. There is, as the apostles say, none other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Christ alone. You can test as well your faith by its nature. And theologians break up the nature of faith into three aspects, knowledge, assent, and trust. You need all three to be saved. Do you know the Christian faith? I trust most of you here do. You know the basics. You could tell me the plain things you have learned about Christ and his work. And you even assent to it, perhaps. You say, yes, that is God's truth, and I believe it. You know the creeds, you know your catechism, and you say, yes, I believe. Not enough. Good, but not enough. Because that third part of faith is trust, without which knowledge and assent cannot save. You must trust the Christ whom you've come to know through all those things you've learned. You must, to use other scriptural language, receive him. You must rest in him. You must come to him. You must look to him, flee to him, embrace him, be in him. He must be in you. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20, that which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Can you say that? Can you say indeed with him, Philippians 1.21, To me, to live is Christ. You can examine your faith, not just by its object in nature, but third, by its fruits. 
Because faith bears fruit, especially the fruit of love. We learn in Galatians 5, 6 that faith worketh by love. Because love is the summary of the law, another way we can say that is the believer keeps the law of God. Again, not absolutely perfectly, but with intent. Do you? Does your faith bear fruit? Is your faith holy? Are you a holy man, a holy woman, even children? Are you a holy child? We learn in Hebrews 12, verse 14, that we must seek holiness without which no man will see the Lord. I'll bring it to a point because this love and this holiness have to have as well a measure of what we call evangelical perfection. Paul speaks that way in our, right after our text when he says in verse 28 that every man may be perfect in Christ Jesus. I say an evangelical perfection because it's not a perfection of degrees as if we had come to the highest possible attainment of a Christian in this life so that we were not sinning. That's impossible. That's what the law demands But we're judged by the gospel. Hallelujah. This is why a sinner can have hope to be saved. But nonetheless, God does demand a perfection of sincerity. That means to say, though your love and though your holiness have failings, they are real. Is this true of you? Do you have a true, sincere, and though failing Pressing on toward the mark, faith. This is how you can know whether Christ is in you. Test your faith by its object, by its nature, and by its fruits. And I counsel you to do this often. Not for your discouragement as a Christian. But self-examination is a wonderful way to build the assurance of a true Christian as we'll see in just a moment. But second, I need to bring you a rebuke. Perhaps in this test, you've not been able to pass. Even if you have, you need to hear a warning here. And the warning in a word is against presumption. To trust in things that don't exist or you don't have a reason to trust in as if it was simply enough to hear of Christ or to claim Christ or to say with your lips, yes, Christ is in me, but to be indifferent as to whether it is true or not. That's presumption. We can presume first in assurance. Assurance is the cream of the Christian faith. It is a blessing that all should want and all Christians should aim for To be confident, God is my God, and I'm his child, and I, by grace, will go to heaven. I want this for each of you as a minister, and I know your minister does too, and all of you should want it for yourself. But the question is, how is it properly had? It cannot properly be based on merely objective outward things. 
the outward preaching of the word, the facts of the Christian faith, the sacraments that Christians enjoy, church membership, etc. All of those things, great comforts and helps in their place, even helps for our assurance. But none of them without what is subjective and internal, whether we believe. Think of a life raft. To a drowning man, it's a wonderful comfort to see there a life raft that's come to me. Oh, and you think, I will be saved. And it's true, but only if you swim to it. Only if you put your hand out and take it and get in that raft. Think of the ark. Anyone that was in it was saved. And what a comfort that was. But not for those who wouldn't go in. You need to know. Do not. Do not entertain false assurance. It will only make you go happily to hell. And that would be cruel to your own soul. But second, we need to hear a rebuke about presumption in preaching. And this is as much for the benefit of preachers as for hearers. Because in preaching, there are two ditches, both of them presumptuous. The one ditch on the side is preaching that is merely practical. Preaching that is all application and no doctrine. That all speaks about faith and self-examination and obedience as I trust you know, is necessary and important. This kind of preaching even goes on to speak of the political and social applications of the word of God. And in a day when ministers just don't do that, that can be refreshing and encouraging to hear. But the problem with this kind of preaching is that with all that, there's no Christ. There's no foundation. The house that's built might be beautiful and you might could live in it for a little bit. But when the storm comes, it's going to fall because there's no foundation Christ. But on the other side, there's a ditch. And I fear many more Christians today are in this ditch. It's the ditch of preaching that is merely Christ-centered. Now, don't misunderstand me. Preaching ought to be Christ-centered. But this is where a preacher preaches Christ, his person, his work, the revelation of his mystery throughout the scripture, which often goes under the name of biblical theology, which is fine in its place. And they preach Christ, yes, but they don't preach in you. Christ, as God never intends it, in fact, replaces faith and repentance and holiness, and self-examination, and this kind of preaching especially despises political and social applications. When instead, by God's design, Christ ought to be the chief motivation for going into all those areas in preaching. If the previous was the house without a foundation, this is a foundation without a house. And when the storm comes, I'd ask you, which would you rather be in? Either way, you're going to die. If there's no house on that foundation, there's nothing to live in. There's nothing to protect you. The hearers of this kind of preaching will die of exposure 
and many do. The previous type of preaching is sometimes called legalism. We call this kind antinomianism, which is a big word to say, a preaching that pretends that grace diminishes our duty, as if Christ relaxes the law of God. Many preachers fall into this ditch, and they make excuses for it. They'll say things like this that sound holy. I leave the application to the Holy Spirit. But that's not a holy thing to say. Because the Spirit left the application to the preacher. Not, of course, to apply by his own power, which would do no man any good. But by the Spirit's power to use the word of God as God intends for the sake, as we heard in 2 Timothy 3, of rebuke, of reproof, of instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Or as Paul says right after our text, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. A preaching that aims at the perfection of of the Christian. There's a great lack of this kind of preaching today. There are many of whom it could be said, as God said in Ezekiel 34, they are shepherds who do not feed the flock. I trust you see why these things need to be rebuked, this kind of presumption in all its forms. But third, and finally, I bring you again an application of comfort. Because if you have both, both Christ and Christ in you, then you have the full gospel, and therefore you have full salvation. And you ought then to draw sweet peace from both parts of this phrase. Think of it first, that if you today are resting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then it is Christ who is in you. You have no mere man dwelling in your heart as if any mere man could. You have inside of you by the power of his Holy Ghost, God. God who is mighty to save. The unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one that lives in you. And he says, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. This is why the true Christian can be confident in every trial of life and in all of that be filled with the hope of glory because Christ is in him. And dear Christian, I want you to know this comfort is not just for those who are stronger than others in their faith. 
The question is not here whether your faith is strong. You ought to want a strong faith and to use the means to strengthen your faith. But if your faith is the weakest of any Christian who has ever lived, if it is nonetheless true faith, then you ought to take this hope and comfort. Because that true faith, weak as it is, takes hold of this mighty Savior. And if you're weak in faith, your duty then is all the more by the means of grace to strengthen that faith that you might more enjoy the Savior, but without doubting in the least that he is yours, that Jesus lives in you. But then second, take comfort from the other part. Yes, it's Christ that is in you, but this Christ is in you. He's not only in heaven in his body, and he's not only among you in this church corporately, he's in you intimately and individually. And this fact is especially a comfort because right now we can say for now, sadly, there are other things in you, namely sin. Just pause and think of this. The Holy Son of God who never sinned and never could, by his Holy Spirit, dwells in the same house as sin. That is your heart. He's willing to do that. That's how much he loves his people. Is, that, is this not an amazing truth? You have sin there and all the sorrows that accompany it. But nonetheless, you have Christ there. And if Christ has moved into the house of your heart, then it means all the other residents have been delivered their final notice and they're going to be evicted. If Christ is in you now, then sin cannot be in you forever. It will be gone progressively in this life and very soon forever in heaven because Christ is in you. So in this three-word phrase, Christ in you, I hope you've seen there is for you a world of comfort and an eternity of consolation. And believer, you ought to take it. May the Lord bless this word to your heart. Let's sing now.